Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 474 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed Jacob Habgood and George Allen of Sumo Digital Academy and asked them about the design and development of the reimagining of Zool, a now 30-year-old platformer game, in the form of Zool Redimensioned. It's always tricky getting hold of an old platform game or a game from previous years and trying to reimagine it and trying to bring it into modern sensibilities, so to speak. And we delve into this quite a lot, both George and Jacob. In fact, George was responsible for the creation of the original game all those years ago when he used to work for a company called Gremlin Graphics. No longer exists, but it was based in Sheffield and its spiritual successor, so to speak, is Sumo Digital, a game company you probably are familiar with. And we do delve into the differences with approach and design of games from when it was back then, which was basically making up as they went along, to now where they're still making up as they go along, only now referring to mistakes made in the past and learning from them. That's why games, for the most part, are significantly, so we say, more approachable than they used to be. I had a great time chatting to Jacob and George about this, and they're very open and honest about how they got not only themselves but also students involved because. They are representing Sumo Digital Academy and they encourage new talent, which is a wonderful thing. So without further ado, let's just listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Jacob and George about Zool Redimensioned. Chris, take it away. Hello, Jacob and George. Hello. Hello there. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Go on, you go first, George. Okay, then. Yeah, I'm a, an academy trainer at Sumo Digital, and I help Jake train up and assess uh, around 10 apprentices each year. 
and uh, I'm loving it. Jake, what do you do? <laughs> I assumed you were going to talk about your background there as well, George. Just oh, really? It's like, oh, we'll, probably, we'll go on to that in the next question. It's fine. Okay. Go yeah. for it, Jake. Right. Yeah, so I'm Jake. So I, I run the academy at Super Digital. I get involved in sort of working with universities, working with schools. And, you know, in the academy, we run the country's first apprenticeship program for game programmers. So next question, again, this is the individual one. We bounce backwards and forwards between each other. It's fine. So how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Uh, who's going first? <laughs> Shall I go you, first? Because I'm the oldest. started before I did. Okay, then fair enough. <laughs> um, so for me, it was like a, a bunch of young coders, I guess, back in the, the 80s. Just uh, the there's a, a gluttony, if that's the right word, of 8-bit machines. So you'd go down to Boots and they'd all be lined up in a row. So, yeah, just had this early love for these things and uh, finally got my big 20 uh, and yeah it, it was just love at first sight so like uh, learned how to, to program using the basic manuals that come with it uh, you know not, they weren't simple uh, it was the language called basic um, and then yeah much later on maybe a year or so and many paper rounds afterwards to, to afford it. I got a Commodore 64, which led on to machine code programming. Again, using a, a book that I, I bought at Boots, which, yeah, I think it's kind of unbelievable these days, but yeah. Um, and then, yeah, did programming away. Uh, and then um, had a few things published, like on sort of cover mount discs, you know, uh, magazines for the Commodore 64. Went to college, spent all my grant money on a Commodore Amiga, uh, and then developed a, a sort of tech demo that I sent off to Gremlin. And yeah, luckily they employed someone uh, who actually looked through all of these games that got sent in. They didn't just throw them out. And uh, as a result of that, I got an interview and got my first job, uh, yeah, Dan Sheffield. But I also want to hear how uh, Jake got into the games industry. Yeah. <laughs> Not let him off the hook. <laughs> oh, no, no. We're going to find out. Jake, what, okay. tell us your yeah, story. So um, it might not look like it, but I am actually slightly younger than, than George. So I, I was in primary school in the 8-bit era. Um, so I, I had a spectrum, um, but I wasn't, you know, wasn't writing machine code on it. I, I wasn't that clever. Um, so it wasn't until the sort of Amiga era that I started to program. And, um, yeah, I used to program in, in Blitz Basic originally. And uh, I learned a bit of C. I made some games that were sort of sold as F1 licenseware when I was doing my A-levels. I studied computer science at university. Um, it was about that stage that I realized there were real jobs in the games industry. I, I think up to that point, I, I sort of just thought it was something that people did in their bedrooms and either became millionaires or, or, or just sort of were complete failures. Right. <laughs> so once I realized you could actually work in an industry and actually have a, a paid day job, then uh, I started applying to different games companies, applied for to a range of different companies. But I think the one I really wanted to work for was was Gremlin, and that's because I I knew their games. I knew Zool, and I knew um, I think the the, the sort of Hero Quest version of the Hero Quest game that they did was a particular favourite of mine at that point. Love the music in that, and uh, what else? Jack the Nipper. That was a good uh, definite favourite of mine. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt very privileged to join a company that I've been playing the games of since you know, most of my childhood. And, yeah, when I got there, so I, I actually arrived just after George had left, pretty much. But when yeah. I got there, there were still buckets full of chopper chops, lollies around the lot, the, the building that uh, you could just sort of help yourself to. And, and that was sort of the legacy of Seoul, if you like. 
I also, uh, yeah, uh, had a love of Gremlin games specifically. In fact, the demo that I sent out to try and get a job, I think I sent it to one place, and that's Gremlin Graphics, based on my love for Son of Blagger, which was written by Tony Crowther, of course, who actually works at Sumo as well. So yet to bump into him, but I've seen him at another event that Jake held uh, in Sheffield. But yeah, Chopper Chop Lollies, eh? like, uh, I, I proudly got my copy of Zool out. I'm going to show the kids, opened it up, and, and the Chopper Chop Lolly that came free in it, I just completely melted over the discs. Uh, but yeah, he scraped it off. It wasn't too bad. Yes, a storied history of Gremlin graphics. And uh, there's, a book, there's a book come out recently about them. And yeah, uh, yeah it's, I remember their bright yellow covers back in the day on the, on the Spectrum at Monty Mole Games as well. That was really fun, the early stuff. So, and again, this next question is a tough one to answer because it's a little bit nebulous, but it's an important one to ask because you are creators and have been for some time. So here it is. What are your biggest influences? It is a good question. <laughs> it's, it's a cheesy answer to say games, but I mean, specifically, you know, there's, there's I mean, going back to Son of Blagger by Tony Crowther, um, it's the very first game that I saw where the player just stayed in the middle of the, the screen and this entire giant level just scrolled around him. Uh, and yeah, that was just mind blowing seeing that. So I think that was my, oh, I really want to do this kind of moment. And that was around at a friend's house before I had my Commodore 64. Uh, but influences wise, back in the day when I was uh, I was at Gremlin Graphics, it, it was uh, pretty much arcade machines. There's a lot of little touches in, in the Amiga games that I did. Uh, and I shared this love with the artists that I worked with. Uh, yeah, we had a had a common sort of knowledge of arcade machines because, of course, you know, uh, they were the best games that you could play uh, back then uh, before they, they, uh, the consoles finally overtook them. Great, and that's given me time to think. Thanks, George. Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, thinking back, I mean, uh, I suppose my, my greatest influences when I was sort of trying to get into the games industry were very much coming from the, the world of sort of fighting fantasy, adventure game books, Dungeons & Dragons, that kind of thing. So it was games like Dungeon Master that I was really into and I the Beholder on the Amiga. Um, and so those were the kind of games that I was aspiring to emulate. And uh, my, my first game that I, I sort of shipped was a multiplayer sort of dungeon crawler, a bit like that, where you could run around and, and attack each other in a sort of three-player game. Um, but uh, I, it's interesting because, it you know, once I actually got into the games industry, I don't think I've ever worked on a game like that. Um so, uh, I mean, you know, the first game I worked on was Reloaded, which was a PlayStation 1 title, sort of, um, you know, a, a sort of shooter. Um, and then uh, Hogs of War um, was a sort of next game. Um, and then, I mean, I worked on a whole range of different, you know, the actual soccer series games and um, different sports games doing sort of different bits of technology. But I've never worked, yeah, I've never worked on a sort of, you know, proper dungeon dungeon-based game maybe I, maybe i need to go back to my roots and, and do something like that oh yeah i mean Baldur's gate 3 certainly opened up a few doors didn't it so uh what a monster that is and here's larian for you but anyway let's move on to the next question it's just as difficult i'm afraid as it'll warn you they do increase in difficulty as we go along but it's deliberate I think it's Jake's turn to go first this time it is <laughs> i think i think it is you're gonna love this one what video game developer do you admire most and why? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I think carefully about that one. Um, George, I admire George. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cop out. But it can be a I company or a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, when I was a, a kid, there were definitely developers that I suppose I really loved the games of. I mean, uh, Peter Molyneux and Bullfrog were very much, you know, the kind of games I like to play, I love to play. Um, you know, Populous, um, that was a definite favourite of mine. <clears throat> but, you know, as, as time goes on, you, you sort of appreciate different things in games and, um, and, and companies rise and fall, don't they? So um, I think these days, um, don't know. Um, that's so hard. I suppose... Uh, I suppose it would come back because because it's you don't necessarily have that same knowledge of who the developers are. I think back in the day, you know, you you, you knew who, um, you know, Peter, I'd heard of Peter Harrop and Tony Crowther and um, Peter Molyneux, and you know, uh, uh, there were there were named people that I could think of. And these days, yes, I mean, you know, you can say Miyamoto, and um, and I, I love the Zelda games, um, but. It's you know if I think about my favourite games, I don't I don't know who developed them. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you who the developers were. Um, I really love For the King. I mean that that that's a, a brilliant game. I'm really looking forward to the um, uh, the sequel that's coming out soon. Play that with my daughters. Uh, wonderful three player game. Absolutely love it. But I've, you know, I could pass I could pass the developers at GDC and I wouldn't know who they were. It's a fair point. However, I would counter with people like Lucas Pope who've done a remarkable job with. You know, papers, please, and um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's the. I think there are named people out there, the the, the polymaths, as they call them, the ones that do almost everything and can, because they have a brain like that, uh, and they are rare. But uh, I do take your point. People are more focused on the output now rather than those who create it, which is one of the reasons this show exists to break down that barrier and put the voice in front of the code. Excellent. Well, when you interview the, the makers of for the king, I I will I'll be there, glued to my right. I yes, well, well, approaches are being made as we speak. I'll, that is actually true. I've actually just emailed them, George. <laughs> tell us who do you point at and go, you there, carry on what you're doing. You're very good. Uh, so for me, I probably got a similar answer to Jake. Um, uh, back in the day, you know, like uh, you'd open that cassette and there'd be a picture of the actual programmer on some of the games. Um, so yeah, it was kind of um just that way i guess uh but yeah for me um obviously tony crowther but jeff minter possibly uh a little bit more because his games were just so easy to hack so me and my friend we actually learned quite a lot of machine code programming just by breaking into to his games uh and then yeah disassembling the source code so I think he'd always like have his uh, scroll routine at like eight thousand hex and that sort of thing. So learn how to do a scroll by uh, yeah having a look at how he did it. And uh, yeah, he did some great games, but his code was relatively simple to understand. Uh, I think that's a compliment. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's certainly back in those days. You know, you got Zap Magazine, Zap sixty four, and so yeah, you get like your superstar developers. But yeah, I mean, I could uh, list a ton of uh, indie games that I just have so much respect for. But like Jake, um, yeah, I probably enjoy the game, and then uh, yeah, but I'm not looking. Oh, who did this? I, th- I think you're you're in a unique position, Chris. I, I, I kind of want to. I want to be able to like 
name a game and then you could tell me off the top of your head which podcast that developer was in. Shall we not do that? <laughs> no, being put okay. on the spot. <laughs> yeah, um, no, sorry. We, we, we did we did have the guys who made Dredge on. That that's they were they were great. So cool. um, okay, so uh, last question. Is it a little bit easier? Maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But uh, I love asking this because it demonstrates to me the creators of games are not living in a bubble and do enjoy the medium as well. So here it is. What are you playing right now? I'm actually playing uh, Last of Us. So I watched the the TV series and it's amazing. Uh, and of course, you know, it's always been on my radar, but I actually skipped a generation of PlayStation. So I went from a PS3 to a PS5, finally got one at Christmas. So yeah, uh, that's what I'm playing through now. It scared the monkeys at me the other day, like we're playing it with headphones and it's like the first time you get some real proper chases in there and you, they, they feel like they're behind you. It's just terrifying. Cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've been playing Nights on Bikes, I think it's called, which is a, a kind of cool indie game, a bit sort of adventure but it almost feels like a storybook, very sort of 80s vibes. Yeah, really enjoying that. Um, I suppose um, in general, I, I just love playing games that help me play, you know, that I can play with my kids and when we can relate and enjoy them together. I think that's that's a really nice activity. I don't tend to play that many games on my own anymore. I, I just don't tend to find the time. So. That's another title that's been on this show, so you can have a look at the archives there when we chatted to the developer because it's a fantastic game. It really is. It's just all about, that game is about friendship. So, that's the end of the first half. Well done, you made it. Let's, uh, let's move on to the second half of the show, where we shall be delving deep into Zool Redimension. do delving deep you need to know what it is it's not fair on a listener might have a clue so in your own words jake and george have a go what is zool redimensioned uh okay so zool redimensioned is a remake of uh, a 1990s classic uh, which is sort of best known on the amiga format um but it's been recreated reimagined 
by a, a cohort of game programming apprentices at the Sumo Academy, and they've sort of brought to it, you know, the kind of touches that you expect from a modern game. And, you know, the, the most sort of obvious of those being this idea that it has been redimensioned, uh, allowing the player to see a wider view of the game, of the world environment that you're playing in um, than you could in the original game. Yeah, I'll say. Jake, do you got anything more to say? It's something that the, the students worked very hard on and, you know, they, they were able to, uh, the first cohort were able to sort of create a version for the PC, which we released on Steam. Um, <clears throat> and as part of that, they got to interact with George. Uh, that's, at that point, George wasn't working for Sumo, um, but because he was the developer of the original game, the students went to him with their sort of ideas and said, you know, what do you think if we do this, if we change this? And George was was very kind and generous with his time and, and feedback. And so so good was he with, with working with the students that uh, we offered him a job. And then he came into the academy uh, as a trainer and then got to work with the next cohort of students that uh, picked up the game, ported it to the PlayStation 4 with a bit of help from um, students from the Steel Minions at Sheffield Hamm University and created a sort of a version of the game that had additional multiplayer modes, that kind of thing. And they shipped that on the PlayStation 4, which was which was great. And, and they had the benefit of George being you know around to, to support them and help them uh, as they coded that. But it is all, all the students, isn't it, really? I mean, like the, the first uh, game on the PC was created by just the, the five uh, students. And I think they were all working from home, weren't they? Like uh, we, had, we have the, you know, we're fortunate enough to all be physically present in a, an academy classroom now. But yeah, originally, yeah, it was just, just the five of them working on it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I remember those, um, yeah, when Jake asked me to sort of have a look at the Zorbi dimensioned and sort of, yeah, have a chat with everyone. And uh, it was lovely. Like uh, one of them had sort of prepared some slides and, and whatnot. And it, it was a little bit like uh, appearing on This Is Your Life, if you remember that show. Uh, it was suddenly like everyone's talking about this game from like 30 years ago. Uh, but yeah, absolute pleasure. And I, I think I remember, uh, yeah, playing it and, and giving back like a couple of A4 sheets of notes. And I think I, I maybe it was too critical or something. I was just like, oh. That feedback from George is why there's two modes in the game. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So there is the sort of um, uh, the redimension mode, but the, what, I forgot what we called it now, George. Um, uh, it was hardcore, I think, was it? Was it just that? The original mode? Yeah, that's sounds wrong for some reason. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there, there are two modes. One has sort of a lot of modern additions. So it's got things like double jumping. And I, I think that was the thing that George, George was a bit kind of like, ooh, not sure you can do that. That, that. that changes the game quite significantly. But I think in terms of making it more accessible and more engaging for a new audience, that, that had a really big effect. And because we'd also taken back the camera, you know, you could now do double jumps and, and pull off moves that were, you know, really quite cool. Um, so I, I think we were very keen to keep that in uh, the redimensioned mode. But then we introduced this other mode that was much harder, um, that sort of took out a lot of these sort of, you know, quality of life features uh, and took it back to kind of where it was. So you only had a single jump, you uh, would end up sort of going back to the start of the level. Often. So it gave those kind of fans of the original game or, or people that thought the original game wasn't too hard something to get their teeth into i don't think i was alone like there's one other apprentice that i remember yeah he, he, he liked the, the single jump but it was it was lovely that yeah uh, the, the extra mode was put in there 
Uh, but I do, yeah, don't tell anyone, but uh, yeah, I do actually like the new version uh, better. <laughs> Being able to see uh, where you're going does, does help in a game, I find. So I, I personally played Zoolwee Dimension both on my, my PC and my Steam Deck, and it works extremely well on the latter. If anything, yeah, we've not played it on a Steam Deck yet. Yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to see it on a Steam Deck, actually. It's, it's slightly more uh, engaging, more immediate, because it's just right there in your face. And that screen is very nice. It's got to be said, it's very nice. So when you have that running like that, it's uh, definitely played it a lot more on the deck than I did on my PC. So, next question. Here we go, design questions. Brace yourselves. So when playing the reimagined version, revised version, or just whatever it is, it's it's a game of itself in my view. And it feels like the two things that made me feel that there's been tweaks, or more than tweaks, I hate using that phrase in video games, changes that have actually significantly changed the experience of playing Zool in a, in a positive way. Yes, we've spoken about the widened camera view. Yes, you can see more. You've got more warning about what's where. You can plot your course and say, I went there, did that, jumped on that, shot, shot at that. That's wonderful. That's very modern sort of like sensibility. But and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like the pace is slightly slower in a positive way. Like it just, it, it, So I'm just going to ask, was this a deliberate thing or was it just an accident or was there, is it slower? It just feels like, not in a negative way, something being slower does not mean it's worse for everyone. It just yeah. means that you can actually drink in the experience a lot more. You get the, you get the, the tokens, you get the, the, collect, the collectibles and the fact you've got all these little... Things to, to, to floop around that gives you a guide about where to jump, and it's just lovely. But it just feels slightly slower. Was that deliberate? I mean, it's hard to make a comparison unless you run it in the old screen mode. Because, um, you know, if, if you zoomed in on something, it, obviously it's moving further on the screen for the same amount of movement in the world, if that makes sense. As soon as you zoom the camera out, then instantly you're getting that feeling that you're perhaps not moving quite as fast. There's no doubt whatsoever, though, that the maximum speed in the game is is you know is faster than the original, and and this is absolutely a deliberate feature. So Owen Leons, who was sort of the um, uh, the the lead programmer on it, the the sort of the student sort of picked up this project in the first place, and and I think he. He was the one that sort of really understood the game mechanics and really understood how to sort of tweak and hone those mechanics. And he put a lot of time and effort into it. But he uh, he was really into sort of speed running of games. And he was very keen that there would be a, some, you know, some deep features in the game that would allow speed runners to get, get something out of this experience. So you'll find um, there's, I don't know whether you found this, but if you do a, a sort of like a double jump and then a, I want to call it a ground pound, but you know, you 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 hit the floor whilst you're running, you will get a certain speed boost, and if you keep repeating that, your speed goes up and up and up and up, um, and it means that ultimately you can actually complete levels in in you know a fraction of the the time that you would if you just ran through them. Um, so you, you'll see these great videos by speedrunners like completing the levels in in just a, a matter of seconds. And that was very, very deliberate and something that Owen brought to that game and I, and I think was a, a great addition. The uh, 
PlayStation 4 version, uh, the, the apprentices put in an auto-coasting feature, so they needed someone to play through the game. And there was the idea of when you push changes to the build, the game can play through itself, uh, and we can test that it's fully functioning. So it helps QA, of course. And yeah, uh, Owen came in to, to speedrun it. It was just ridiculous to watch. Like uh, he's fighting one of the bosses. I think it was like the guitar boss, and he, he's got like an auto fire rate of I don't know. It's, it's possibly like 30, 30 fires per second or something. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's good to see the game played in that way. The next thing I want to raise is the importance of when it comes to platform games. It's always about where you're going, not where you've been or where you currently are because that's kind of beside the point <laughs> you're, you're there you know and it's something we've, we've raised in this show before about platformers but every way every platformer game has its own way of dealing with this fact that the player is constantly looking to where they're going rather than where they are or more to the point they're looking at mid space between where mm-hmm. they're trying to see what the route is to get to where they want to get to and trying to draw their attention. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic, I believe, of actually where's the person's attention drawn? And, you know, that kind of like focus and understanding and giving them a chance. And Zulri Dimension does this. It does a lot of things to help and advertise to the player that maybe you want to go there. Don't have to. That looks interesting, doesn't it? Look at that. And you don't have to go there. If you like, it's keep going. But look at that. I just want to ask. Can you talk us through that aspect of the design of Zulri Dimension, basically giving the you know, the player a little bit of hints and, and there's like, and also making them aware of where they are, where they're going, to give them a chance yeah. about what they should do. I mean, certainly in terms of level design. I mean, that was Rob Funnel, who's another one of the students. He really took on board the idea of, you know making minor adjustments to the level so we we absolutely didn't want the levels to feel like something completely new we wanted people who played the original game to recognize what they were seeing but at the same time he was very keen to make sure that you know we we made certain things a bit smoother and that we did help to guide people through because the original game suffered a lot really from uh, you just get lost and and not know where you were going, and uh, uh, so because but it had that little arrow, didn't it, that that pointed you back to the the exit, didn't it? And I think that I don't know, maybe asked George, but was that was that sort of <clears throat> because people were getting lost? Was that a sort of a, a feature from the start, or it could well be? Does it point towards the final coin thing or or object that you collected in Zool. It's been a little while since I played the original. Uh, But yeah, I mean, level design-wise, I actually, uh, it was just myself and the artist, Ed, and um, yeah, uh, we didn't actually have a level designer back then. Um, And so, yeah, I I created the initial set of levels, uh, and I guess they're they're a little bit more horizontal, but then later on, uh, we joined by Tony, who... uh, yeah, got full into level design, and uh, it was kind of cool. And maybe we sort of egged them on to uh, make the most of the engine that we created, uh, uh, which I, I believe had some sort of bite run compression on it, so you could fit like a relatively large map and a, and a relatively complex map. So yeah, um, as the game progresses, uh, I think he got <laughs> he got more used to uh, yeah creating ever more elaborate maps uh, to to navigate. So yeah. Good job in uh, making some sense. I think, um, yeah, Rob actually uh, was it Rob? Sorry, uh, he, it, was Rob. Uh, yeah. it was Rob. Um, 
actually poke some holes in, uh, in, in, in some of the walls to sort of make a nicer route through the, some of the levels. It did a great job. And, and little things. I mean, there's, there's, um, uh, in fact, it was there in the original. There, there's a pickup after you complete the first boss. So the, the B boss, and I think if, if people have played the original Zoo, they'll probably remember the first B boss sort of jump, jumping around like a humbug. Um, and there's this sort of one pickup that's just sort of stray at the top of the wall. And none of us could work out why it was there, um, but it sort of tempts people to go and sort of search for it. So we, we added a, a, a bit of a, a bonus on that so you get a trophy for finding that. Um, so Rob was really into this sort of, you know, exploring the lore of the original game. I mean, there were books written about the original game, believe it or not. Um, he read all of those. He, he brought together the, all that information into his sort of um, uh, bit at the start of the game where it tells you all about the, the different monsters and things so you can you know, find out information um, about all the different characters in the game, all the different pickups, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was very much his thing. And he spent ages sort of tweaking the levels and making sure that they they really were, you know, a much much better guided experience through the environments than than the original game i think yeah yeah give you some context why not next question then the boss fights in zul redimensioned um, they do much to exercise the player's abilities or exercise their understanding of what zul can actually do because sometimes you have to they force the player to do things they wouldn't normally be doing, like doing a slam down or dodging or weaving or maybe sort of ducking and sliding and that kind of thing. Um, I found most pe- people, when they grab hold of it, including myself, when I initially started playing, it's all we dimensioned, I would simply run and jump and fire typically and dodge, maybe your duck here and there, but that's what I was generally doing. But these boss fights really push the envelope of what, the player can actually do i just have to ask is that was that the intention for mm-hmm. those boss fights because they normally I mean, are i mean kind of um i i'd love to say that there was this beautiful plan that was laid out for all the bosses and that it was meticulously followed and uh but what actually happened is that um each of the apprentices took on different bosses um so you know it, it became a uh, sort of a thing of personal pride and actually some competition amongst them. So, you know, one would implement one boss and they'd add a bit extra that wasn't in the original game. And the next one would go, oh, that's cool. I, I should make my boss a bit harder then. And they would add some additional things to theirs. So, and I think in particular, there was this competition between um, the the tool level boss. So the, the, the drill that comes and gets you and it's got a sort of, it's got two stages to it. There's a bit of false ending and you drop down, all this kind of stuff. Um, there was a competition between that and then the, uh, I think it was Rob that did that. It made it, he made it so, you know, there was so many stages to it and it was so cool. We're going, but hold on, this is now better than the final boss in the entire game. Um, (laughs) this isn't going to work. Um, but, um, uh, but (laughs) what, what we ended up doing is essentially, you know, making the final boss, um, even bigger and even better so that it could actually, uh, compete with that too. So, um, it was this constant competition between the team members that, that I think really made that work and, and got some really interesting results out of those boss games. Next question, and last one. Here you go. Why are you... The, the visuals, obviously the, 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 the main character is the same. I was going to use the word sprite then, but I know it's not one of those. 
but the main character is always he's still there doing his thing from the end dimension. And so the visuals ostensibly look very similar to what the original used to be, but there are subtle differences I've found in terms of contrast of colour, the, um, the the enemies that seem to be easier to spot, that kind of thing. Could you talk us through what modifications you did do to the visuals to um, over and above the normal far more colours and that sort of thing? That's obvious. Maybe not, I don't know, but just... Talk us through what you did there with uh, you took from a not a blank canvas, we already had parts, but then you had to say, well, okay, well, what do we do with these now? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I suppose the first thing you have to understand is that uh, so th- th- this was the, the country's first, um, you know, uh, apprenticeship in game development, but it was specific to programming, so we only had programmers on a team, um, there were no artists. <laughs> um, and that's sort of why we ended up making Zool in many ways is because we already had the graphics there. Um, and, you know, that meant that we, we, we didn't need those, the, the artists on the team to do that with us. Um, but inevitably, you know, as things develop, you, you find there's a few things you do want to do. You know, the front end, we wanted to redo that. And, and certainly there were little bits and bobs here and there that we want to introduce from different versions of Zool and, so um, we did have some help um, from uh, Sandish, uh, who's a, a student from Sheffield Hallam University, who came in and joined us um, uh, uh, sort of quite late on in the project. Um, and then when we got to the PlayStation version and we added sort of um, multiplayer and that kind of stuff, uh, we had Martina, um, who was our official um, uh, academy artist, who helped us out with that too. Um, but by and large, we, we weren't trying to add a huge amount to the original game. You know, we wanted to stick with the original content. Yeah, we were happy to sort of tweak different kinds of enemies to sort of make them more or less um, <clears throat> sort of powerful. I mean, particularly some of the later levels, uh, there's these sort of, I don't know what you call them, plants that sort of spit out seeds at you. And they were almost impossible in the original game. So we, we sort of toned them down quite a bit. Um, and even the, the sort of sweetie beasties from the the, the first uh, level that that spit the the, the the sort of walking ones with the um, licorice order sorts, aren't they? Um, and they can sort of spit a lot of things out at you. And the and the bees they they can be quite threatening in the original game. So we did tone some of these things down in their their sort of AI behaviours, if you like. But the graphics typically are you know the same as you know either the Amiga version or the um says version or, or whatever version we had to hand really um the other thing i was going to say is is the contrast of the level so you, you mentioned that um that was definitely something that sort of we were conscious of um so uh, some of the critique of the original game was that it was very hard to tell the difference between you know landscape that was safe to, to walk on and things that were going to kill you basically because everything was just bright and colourful and uh, and there wasn't really any distinction. And that we, we so originally when we released the game on the PC on Steam, that's still the way things were, um, that there wasn't any sort of change that we'd made to the contrast of different parts of the game. Um, but we got that that feedback. So uh, a lot of the reviews sort of said, oh, you know, this is still quite clumsy. Yeah, you can see further, but you still don't know whether you're landing on something that's going to kill you or not. So at that point, we introduced some uh, some shader sort of programming in there, which essentially dynamically colors different parts of the, the environment. 
Um, and it's actually tweakable, so you can go into the menus and you can turn it off if you, you want it completely how it used to be, or you can whack it right up so that there's a huge contrast between you know the things that are going to kill you and the things that are safe. Uh, but it was to try and address that problem, essentially. I guess when the game, of course, was originally uh, programmed, the background wasn't there. It would have been a, a sort of a colourful backdrop uh, made by the co-processor. So you just change the colour every single scan line uh, to get these nice sort of colourful effects. But yeah, that, uh, I guess when it was originally done, that wasn't so much of an issue. Uh, but, but yeah. I think it was, was it the Mega Drive version? The assets came from it, yeah. Yeah. So that's where the scrolling backgrounds came from. Yeah. I do remember the A1200 version as well had some enhanced Hmm. backgrounds as well uh, because of the ATA chipset for what it was, you know. Yeah. Traveling now got me to make, I think, two other versions after the original, a, is it a 600 or 500? I can't believe I don't know that. Uh, yeah. The, the, yeah, the original giant one that I, that I got. Um, but yeah, that's why eventually I had to leave Gremlin, because they kept sort of dragging me back onto the Amiga to do another version of Azul, and I kind of wanted to work on the SNES and things like that. <laughs> of course, of course. So, Zool Redimension has been developed by Sumo Digital Academy. Remarkable um, establishment, so thanks for, for coming on. And it's published by Secret Mode. And can you tell us what platforms it is available on, please? So it's available for PC um, on Steam and for PlayStation platforms, so PS4, PS5, um, through the PlayStation Store. Jake and George, it's been wonderful having you on the show. It really has. You've been very open and honest in discussing the creation and design and development of uh, Zool Redimensioned been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. You're more than, welcome, you, Chris. To, yeah, you're more than welcome to come back, chat about what next you're working on, whatever it may be, or d- developing with your students and stuff. I was going to say, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but until then, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Cheers. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you, both George and Jacob, for being such great guests. I do hope they make a return sometime soon. Now, next week, we have Primoz Vovok of Ember Heart Games to talk about Wizardom. Now, the spelling of this is W-I-Z-O-R-D-U-M. Very careful with the spelling. You'll find other games. It's not the traditional spelling of wizard. And it's basically a boomer shooter. There's a phrase that I still don't entirely know how it's defined, but it's in the same vein as a 2.5D plane FPS only set in a higher fantasy place rather than in a grimy space station, as is common with boomer shooters. It's similar to Heretic, if you know that title, or indeed Hexen, a game I slightly prefer over Heretics. It's a little bit more complex. Anyway, Wizardom is more of a puzzle game than it is an FPS, a real action adventure. And I have a great time talking to Primoz about this extraordinary game. So, that's episode 475. Next week, do make sure you download and have a listen to that. Until then, I'll now pass you on to my pre-recorded self. Bye! You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. 
Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canerinse.com. <laughs>